in the house of God. You know, um, back when I wasn't a believer, um, you know, we would, we would go out, um, and I'm ashamed to say it now, we would go out in clubs, and we'd have a good time, and then when we came home, there was like all this regret and shame, and I love it that you can, you can come into the house of the Lord, and you can have a good time, and there's none of that, right? Like, you can go home, and you've been in the house of the Lord, and there's no regret and shame with that. And I look at my life prior to becoming a believer, and there's all sorts of regret and shame attached to that because that's all that the world produces, regret and shame. What the world calls fun, right, always produces regret and shame. But what the Christian vision of what fun truly is offers a clear conscience before the Lord. And that's a wonderful thing. Praise the Lord for that. All right, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 12. Um, I want to say uh, right before we begin, um, a big thank you to all of you for giving to the Food Network. Um, it was absolutely incredible what we were able um, to, to get just from the, the small little ask. Uh, we, all of you all provided over $500 um, to give to the Food Network, which is an incredible amount for us um, and for them. And now they're going to be able to use that money to buy Thanksgiving baskets and meals. So I praise the Lord for that. Um, that's the beauty of the Christian community, right? That we can um, make an ask and the people of God respond. And now a whole bunch of people are going to be blessed this, uh, this Thanksgiving. And I truly give uh, God the glory for that. So thank you uh, all once again. All right, uh, our text. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 down to verse 22. And I'm really, uh, I'm going to read the whole passage, but I'm really going to focus the teaching on 8 through 17. I was originally going to do 8 through 22, and then every commentator I looked at said, hey, you probably shouldn't teach both of these at the same time. And, you know, I was saying, like, hey, they don't know me. Like, you know, you only live once, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and do it. But the more I got into it, I was like, this would be very foolish if I were to do two. So I'm just going to focus on 8 through 17, but I'm going to read the, uh, the entire passage to the end um, for, for our edification. So hear now the word of the living God. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are open, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, 
having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Lord, this is the time where we all need to decrease and you need to increase. Please, I pray that you might increase the word in the minds and in the hearts of your people. Increase your word in the heart and mind of the one speaking. Lord, these people have come here to hear from you because they love you and they want to hear your voice. Father, my prayer is that they do clearly and that they might be changed as a result. We thank you and praise you for the awesome power of the gospel. As Paul says, we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of the Lord is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Thank you that our faith rests on the pure word of the gospel, and that we can live by it. And now, Father, by the power of your Spirit, bless us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Um, one of the core teachings of the Christian faith is that the Christian suffers persecution. That's, that's a core tenet of the Christian faith. And, you know, we live in the United States of America where we have... Um, in many ways, been largely, uh, we, we've largely, or I should say probably by and large, persecution hasn't been our reality, not like how it is in other countries, right? Now, I'm saying this to say, praise the Lord. You, you should rejoice that you live in a country where you have religious freedom, 
that you live in a country where you can come and worship freely and we're not hiding in a cage somewhere. Praise the Lord for that. But I, but I also want you to know that that is not the norm. That is outside of the norm. I want you to know that the reality of the fact that we live in a country where we're free to worship without persecution, that is outside of the norm. What is the norm is that when Christians bring their private faith into the public sphere, persecution follows. What is the norm is that when Christians proclaim Christ in the world, they are persecuted for it. That is more the norm than anything else. In fact, Jesus said it like this in the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my, recount, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the norm. Now, as I was reading that passage, I couldn't help but wonder if as Peter heard that sermon multiple times, if that's not what's behind the passage that we just read today. You, you all know Peter was a disciple of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was an itinerant preacher, and he would normally preach the Sermon on the Mount wherever he went. So Peter probably heard this sermon, I don't know, like 50 plus times over the past two and a half years that he was with Jesus. This sermon was burned into his mind. And that's why when Peter writes this letter, the whole concept of suffering under persecution and proclaiming Christ in the world was so foremost in his mind because the teaching of Jesus Christ at its core was to warn believers that when we take our private faith public, we could expect persecution. Miroslav Volf, who is a uh, Christian theologian, he's written many books. Uh, one book is entitled The Public Faith. Um, it's a fantastic work. I, I highly recommend that. But, of course, read the Bible first. I, I recommend a lot of books uh, from behind the pulpit because that's just how I'm wired. I, I love to read. But I always want to caution people, I'm not, do not elevate book reading over Bible reading. Read your Bible, right? But if you've read your Bible and you're looking for other works, this, this work is, is fantastic. And one of the things that Marislav Vol says is that our responsibility as Christians is to bring the Christian vision of the world to the world, which means that we bring the teachings of the kingdom wherever we go in the world. And if we do that, or I should say when we do that, we should expect persecution. We should just expect it. That's the call of Christianity. Now, I say all of that to say that's what Peter is doing in this passage. Peter is reminding this group of Christians that are suffering persecution that their responsibility is still to bring the message of Christianity even in the midst of that uh, persecution. In fact, look at the word finally. 
The word finally there is the word telos, and it means to sum up or the aim or the goal of his teaching. Now remember, what, what did Peter teach uh, in, ver- in chapter 1 and 2 and at the beginning of chapter 3? He teaches two important core things. The first is this, that you have been born again to a living hope. That you are different. Your nature has been changed. You've been born again. And as a result of being born again, you have a new nature in Christ. But the second thing is this. Peter taught in chapter 2 that you now live a life in complete submission to Jesus Christ and nothing else. And beloved, if you believe those two things and you live in light of those two things, they will cause persecution. If you walk this earth with a completely new nature and live in a completely new way and your life is under the submission of Jesus Christ that will invite persecution from the world and so what does Peter say as he brings this renewed vision of the Christian life to the word uh, to God's people so that they can uh, bring it out in the world well he says two things are going to happen or two things should be true the first is this that we should be a community whose character is shaped by the character of Christ. Look at verse number 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. All of those traits, all five of those traits, are traits that can be said of Jesus Christ. Those things are true of Christ. And your character as a believer should be shaped like the character of Christ, which we see here in in verse number 8. But he says something else. Peter says that as a community of believers, we should be a people that bless freely instead of reviling. Notice in verse number 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for for to do this, you were called, or for to this you, you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So what is Peter saying here? That one of our responsibilities as believers is to be a blessing to the world. That's our calling on top of having a godly Christian character. R.C. Sproul, um, who is a Reformed theologian, he's dead now, you might know his work through Ligonier Ministry, R.C. Sproul said something profound in a sermon I I listened to like a few weeks ago, and he said this. Remember that every time we see the word blessing in the Bible, every time we see it, remember that a curse was pronounced on Jesus Christ in order to bless you. Because what does the Bible say? Cursed is everyone who does what? Hang on a tree. That Christ was cursed for you, and because Christ has taken on the curse, you and I are free to bless. So even when we are cursed and we are reviled, we don't have to respond in kind. Instead, we can bless others because we have been given a profound blessing in the gospel. So that's the first part of this section. And actually, verse 10 through 12 supports that as he talks about the life of David when he was in exile from Saul. Uh, That's what verse 10 through 12 is talking about, that David, instead of reviling Saul or getting even with Saul, produced, had such a godly Christian character that he would bless rather than curse. Now, that all sets up the Christian character we should have. Verse 13 through 17 is what I want to spend the rest of my time on. 
because it's in those verses Peter gives us how to practically live the Christian life in a world that's hostile towards us, right? So this is the practical aspect on that. Everybody ready? Real quick, there are three things. How do you live in a world that's hostile to your faith? How do you live in a world in which increasingly, if you tell someone you're a Christian, you will be reviled? Peter says three things, and all of them are in verse 15. The first is this. Peter says that we should honor Christ. Secondly, Peter says that we should give a defense of our faith. And thirdly, Peter says we should be gentle. So let's look at these real quick. First of all, Peter says we should honor Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the first calling of the believer, as he takes his faith out into the world, or she takes his faith out in the world, is that we honor Christ. Now, what's the context here? The context is simply this. When you and I take our private faith into the public world, right? When we take our private faith to school, when we take it to work, when we take it anywhere we go, there is a temptation to fear telling people that we're Christians, right? Now, I've experienced this all the time. I go out somewhere, me and somebody are chatting, and we're having a great time, and then they ask me what I do, and I tell them I'm a pastor, and you could almost see the ground underneath them open, wishing they could be swallowed, right? I become, I, like, it's like I have COVID, right? I mean, conversation stops, laughter stops, everything stops. They, you know, they don't want to be my friend anymore. Why? Because there's so many things associated with being Christian. And, and that's imputed on me immediately. I, I had a professor in seminary. He told us as pastors, he said, yeah, things get a lot worse. You need to change well, what you tell people you do. Instead of telling them you're a pastor, you should tell them you teach the science of living blessedly forever. <laughs> I was like, I like that. I'm a scientist? This is, this is awesome. Maybe I could say I'm a scientist of the soul, you know? But, but listen, you all have experienced that, right? Have you ever gone somewhere and start talking to people, and then all of a sudden they find out you're a Christian, and it's like you're a leper? Nobody wants to talk to you. Or worse, they start maligning you. And, and see, what that produces is fear. That's what Peter says here. Peter says, um, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. And then he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But that often happens to us. We go out in the public square and we're afraid to tell people we're a Christian. Or we're afraid to... Uh, advanced Christian teaching. We live in a fearful way. And Peter is saying, don't do that, right? Don't allow fear to govern how you live in a public square. That's literally what the word trouble means. In fact, the word trouble there is, is it's a fascinating word. Uh, word. It almost has the idea of an animalistic fear, the way animals react in the wild. Uh, how many of you watch National Geographic? I'm a National Geographic watcher. I love it. And one of the things about National Geographic, I, you know, this is kind of like my sadistic part. I, I just love to see lions eat gazelles, 
Like, I just love to see them. I'm just, hey, I'm supposed to, like, confess my faults one to another, so I'm kind of doing that now, right? So that's one of the things I love to do. I love to see the, the lions chase down the gazelle and, you know, put their, like, fangs in their neck, just choke them out. Like, there's something about that that it's just, it's a circle of life. It's awesome. But, but one of the things that, that interests me is that every now and then they'll just show, like, the gazelle in, in, like, the woods or whatever, and it's responding to every noise. If they hear a crackle, they run. Or they, you know, they walk somewhere and they hear something and they flee. What, what's happening there? They're troubled. They're ruled by fear. They're ruled by fear. They can't live in peace. They're not like the mighty lion that walks about in the Serengeti fearing nothing. No, no, no. They're so controlled by fear because they're always thinking there's a lion or a predator behind every bush. And beloved, we're like that at times. We're ruled and governed by fear. Now, what is the anecdote for fear? Peter tells us in this passage, the anecdote for fear is that we honor Christ the Lord as holy. Here's what Peter is saying here. There is a lion of the tribe of Judah that you and I as God's people should hold as dear in our hearts. Now, now to, to understand the full scope of what he's saying here, the, the heart, the heart. In ancient Near East, the heart was the, the seat of all emotions. It's where all of our emotion, the will, everything is bound up in the heart. And Peter is saying that rather than having people rule our emotions, that we live in fear of what people might say or do to us, we instead should live honoring Christ, that Christ alone should be the ruler of our emotions, not what people will say to us, not when people would do to us. Right? That's what Peter is saying here. Now, what happens when um, Christ is not honored in our hearts? What happens when when we allow other people to, to um, rule over us. Well, Paul tells Timothy that in 2 uh, no, Timothy, Paul makes this statement to Timothy. Timothy was known for being fearful for, for his youth, and as he's in the community and he's preaching and teaching, he was known for being timid. He's known for being fearful. And Paul wrote to Timothy and he said this, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of what? Power, love, and sound mind. Now, all of us know math. Well, most of us know math, right? Now, if I came to you and I gave you $100 and I say, give me back $300, what would you tell me? You'd tell me no, right? Because that's a bad trade, and you'd be right, okay? So young people, don't allow anybody to fool you by saying, I'll give you four quarters if you give me $4. That would be a bad trade. And we all understand that because we all understand math. Well, let me ask you this question. Why do we trade it in our personal lives? You would never do that for money. You would never let someone give you $300, right, or $100, and you give them $300. But we do this in life, right? What is Paul telling Timothy? God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. So here's what he's saying. When you fear, you give up what? Power, love, and sound mind. 
every time. Every time. Now, if you're not comfortable with that in your financial dealings, you should not be comfortable with that in your personal dealings. That's why when we go out in the world, we don't fear. We ought not to fear. Because when we fear, what happens? We give up power, love, and sound mind. So what is, what is the power of the gospel? What, why is he telling the people of God that we need to honor Christ in our heart? Because then Christ is the one that gives us the power, love, and sound mind. That Christ is the one that produces, hear me, fearlessness. You become fearless when Christ is honored in your heart, when you sanctify Christ in your heart, when Christ becomes the primary reason for what you do and where you go. You become fearless. And what happens as a result of being fearless? What happens as a result of being fearless is that people come to you and ask you about the hope that's in you with meekness and in fear. That's what the passage is saying. Notice, when you, when you honor Christ the Lord in your heart, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear, right? When people see you fearlessly proclaiming Christ at your job, at your school, anywhere you go, they want to know, what do you have that I don't have? Because let me tell you this, people in the world who do not honor Christ in their hearts as Lord, they live in a fearful existence. They live in a fearful existence. They're always wondering, what, what are people saying about me? Are, are, what, what are people thinking about me? They always change their behavior, right? Because they don't want to be maligned. But, but for the one who honors Christ in their heart, we live fearlessly. We live fearlessly. And when people see that fearlessness, they want to know, what do you have? And so Peter is saying that we need to be prepared to give a defense of that, which leads us to the second uh, thing, it's the hope. You need to be prepared to give a defense of the hope. Now, when most people see the word defense, right, they probably know or they've probably heard that the word defense there is the Greek word apologia, which means apologetics. And so immediately they think in their mind, oh, you know, like it means apologetics. So I have to, you know, I have to either be a classical apologist or an evidentiary apologist or a presuppositional apologist. And I need to know all the arguments for the existence of God. And I need to read all of these books in order to give a defense of the faith. That's immediately what people say. But that's actually not what Peter is talking about. Now, now let me take a quick step back and say this. I praise the Lord for people who can do that. I praise the Lord for people who are gifted in, in the reading and the studying and apologetics. I praise the Lord for that. But that's not actually what Peter is saying here. Read the text again. Peter says that when you are fearless, you have to be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for, or for a reason for the hope that is in you. What is the hope that is in you? Go back to chapter 1, verse 3. The hope that is in you is the living hope that is produced by the power of the gospel. In other words, what Peter is saying is this. 
You have to be prepared to give, an offen- to give a defense for why you are a believer. That's it. Now, you don't have to know all the arguments. You don't have to know every in and out of apologetics. You don't have to do that. All you have to be able to do is to tell people or explain to people why did you become a believer. And here's the beauty of that reality. Each and every one of us in here can do that if you're a Christian. Not everyone inside here has the capacity to be able to give a thoroughgoing defense of every aspect of the Christian faith. Guess what? Jesus doesn't require that. What he does require is for you to be able to give a defense and tell people, why are you a believer? What is it about the gospel that got a hold of your heart that brought you out of darkness and into light? That's all you have to give a defense for. That's all you're required to give a defense for. And everyone in this building, if you name Christ as Lord, if you honor him in your heart, has the ability to do that. There's a wonderful example of this actually in John chapter 9. I'm reading through the book of John uh, for my yearly Bible program. And by the way, I always encourage people, read through, read through the Bible like either once or twice a year. Or I said that wrong. Either once a year or once every two years, right? Try to read through the Bible in a year. I'm amazed after, like I've been reading through the Bible now for many years, and I'm amazed that every time something sta- stands out uh, to me, right? So, so anyway, I, that's like a little aside. Um, so John chapter 9, there's a great example in John chapter 9 of someone giving a defense for his faith. It, it's the story of the blind man, right? There's the story of the blind man. He's blind. Jesus comes to him, and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath day. And after Jesus heals him, the whole city gets in an uproar, and, and all of the Pharisees want to see him. And the Pharisees said, do you believe that this Jesus uh, is a sinner, or do you believe that he's a prophet? And the man just says, it's clearly he's a prophet. And the Pharisees get angry, and they were like, no, 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 he's not a prophet, he's a sinner. Uh, he's, you know, his father's the devil. And they start pressing on the man to deny Christ. And I love what the man says in response to them. He gives a brilliant defense of the faith. Here's what he says. The man says, look, I don't know too much about whose disciples he is and all of that, but I do know this. God doesn't listen to sinners in the way Jesus, he listens to Jesus. That if Jesus was truly a sinner, there's no way that God would listen to him and open up my eyes. And in fact, only the true worshiper of God can do what Jesus did, right? That was his defense. They got angry at him and said, no, you're a demon. Get out. And they kick him out. Now, ask yourself the question, why did they kick him out? Think think with me for a moment. Here's why they kicked him out. The text doesn't say this, but this is true. The reason why they kicked him out is because they realized what he was saying. The Pharisees are the ones who didn't know Jesus. The Pharisees are the ones who didn't know God. 
the Pharisees, if they truly knew God, would be able to open up the eyes of the blind. If they truly knew God, they would have the power to be able to do the things that Jesus is doing. And the mere fact that they weren't shows that they were the sinners and Jesus was the righteous one. That's what it means, that's what it means to, to give a defense of the faith. It's simply taking the truth of Scripture and proclaiming it. And you, by doing that, would evidence more wisdom than the wisdom in the world. Look at Peter and the other disciples. When, they, when people heard them preach, what did people say? I perceive that these are unlearned and uneducated men. Now, how can a bunch of uh, fishermen who were never educated, never really taught the, the Torah as much, how were they able to give such a thoroughgoing defense of the Christian faith? Because what they were doing was giving an answer for the hope that was in them. That's what we're called to do. And if we do that faithfully, we'd be just like them. Now, real quick, notice the last one. Not only does Peter say that we need to give a defense of the hope that is in us, with, uh, the hope that is within us, but thirdly, we need to do it with gentleness and respect. Now, what is he talking about in terms of gentleness and respect. That when you are reviled, you're not to revile. That when you get slander, you're not supposed to slander. Instead, you're supposed to give a defense of your faith with gentleness and respect. What is he referring to here? Well, Peter is talking about three things. And here they are, real quick. First of all, when we respond with gentleness and respect to the world that is hostile against us, Peter said that we demonstrate the power of God's grace over our sinful nature. That we don't fight back. We evidence the power of God's grace over our sinful nature. Uh, there's a commentator, Karen Jobes, who in her commentary tells an amazing story. And the story is of a soldier, a Christian soldier, when he was in his, uh, as he was in his barracks, he would read his Bible and pray. And he had an unbelieving soldier that, that was right across from him. And the unbelieving soldier would constantly revile him and curse at him because he would read his Bible and pray. Constantly. And, and as the story goes, um, one night the unbelieving soldier got so angry at the believing soldier that he took his shoes and he threw it at him and hit him with it. They went to sleep, and the next morning, the unbelieving soldier woke up and saw that his dirty, grimy shoes was neatly placed on his bed, polished and ready for inspection. Right? Now, hear me today. What happened in that scenario? Well, what happened in that scenario is this. The power of God's grace in the life of that soldier enabled him to win over his sinful nature. What would the sinful nature do in that particular case? Well, throw the shoes back. That's clear. Because that's, that's the sinful nature. The sinful nature is to always respond viscerally to someone who is being visceral towards you. But, but if you are to evidence the power of God's grace in your life, the power of God's grace has to start winning over the old nature. Because if it doesn't, there'll be no evidence of change. But the second thing is this. Because he did that, it evidences the power of God's grace through radical new behavior. What is the radical new behavior? 
he took the shoes and he cleaned it. It was perfect and spotless, right? Perfect and spotless. And he put it neatly on his bed. That is only the type of behavior that can come from a new nature and from the grace of God. But here's the third thing. It evidenced the power of God's grace to triumph over the sinful actions of the world. The fact that that, un, that believing soldier put the shoes on his bed, even though he was being reviled and cursed and he had those shoes thrown at him, evidences the power of God's grace to produce behavior that's far more attractive, far more powerful than the sinfulness being hurled at him. Now, here's a part of the story that I left off when I initially told it. After he did that, there was a group of soldiers in the same barracks who saw him day in, day out, um, continuously loved and served that particular unbelieving soldier. There was a group of soldiers who saw that. And because of that, they repented. They came to know Christ. Now, why is that? Here's why. Grace is always more attractive than sin. Grace is always more attractive than sin. Grace will always win over gracelessness. The power of the gospel and the power of grace always supplants the power of sin. Always. That's why Peter is telling them, whatever you do, as you uh, give a defense for the hope that is within you, do it with gentleness and respect because it will evidence the power of God in our lives. Now, what's, what's the big takeaway? The big takeaway is simply this. Jesus has called us to be lights amid darkness. That's it. That this is the calling of the believer. This is the calling of the believer to be lights amid darkness. And if we're going to do that, we have to have the character of Christ. We have to be the kinds of people that will be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us with meekness and fear. We have to give, uh, be the kind of people who respond with the power of gentleness and respect. Because in doing that, we show people that grace always triumphs over evil. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you then indeed it is true that as we go out into the world and we bring the vision of the Christian world, uh, the vision of Christianity and the gospel into the world, we will be persecuted. But Lord, you have not left us unprepared. You've given us all that we need to be able to do it, namely the power of your spirit. And so help us as your people to be mindful of that. Help us as your people to rest in that. Help us, Lord. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen.